Jamie Falcia, welcome to the Village Oak Tree for August 23rd, 2023. Hello again, my name is Terrence O'Donnell and I'm returning to your digital village with more non-mainstream news from around the world and an op-ed about a specific topic I hope it'll make you sit up and take notice, which especially for this week. This once a week podcast is hosted on RSS.com and it's also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and a few others. A little about me. I'm a senior citizen activist of Irish descent and a self-professed Sean Hoy, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting under your village oak tree, where I'll give you headlines from news feeds and relevant blog articles. These stories are generally about climate change, racism, politics, and social injustice. Each article I give you will have a link to read the piece in its entirety in the follow-up newsletters posted on medium.com and substack.com. I also add the newsletters to the blog section of my website at Ankrambia. There's more about my website in a little advert during the break. Now, I produce this podcast for free as a way to push people to get up and make a difference in our world before it gets too late. I do offer the option of donations to the Village Oak Tree website here at rss.com where this show is hosted, and it's all to help support my activism, much like the passing of the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. I'll be taking a break once I give you the headlines I've picked out for you this week, then I'll bring you the op-ed of the week. This one's going to be a, a bit long, so I don't have that many headlines for you. So this one, the op-ed in this case is important if you are of Irish or of your Irish descent here in America. And I think it may interest you a lot if you have any interest at all of what's going on over there in the Emerald Isle. So with any of that, I will get busy with you and bring you your stories. These, As usual, I picked them out in the last seven days, so some of them might seem like they're a little bit old. So my first story this week, Maine, the state of Maine, forced to house immigrants in hotels for the next year at a cost of $1.9 million by Anna Giratelli and the Washington Examiner. So Maine's largest city, Portland, city of only about 68,000, is being forced to house about 1,600 immigrants and asylum seekers from Congo and Angola. They don't have the facilities for so many. They have farmed some out to neighboring towns nearby, but they keep coming. It's not just here, but a lot of other northern cities are being overwhelmed and the capacity levels are straining everything they have. So North America is becoming a lot like Europe now, with all these people trying to escape poverty caused by, caused by climate change. And the big thing about it here is the United States is being overwhelmed in a lot of ways because the states and even the federal government don't have the facilities to handle them all. And that's becoming a bigger problem everywhere. And then I, I've got more, I try to put all these together, so I've got more immigrant stories for you here. My next one, why Chinese migrants to the U.S. risk deadly journey via the jungles of South America by Sean Yuan. And this came out of South China, South China Morning Post. I got this on August 20th. So I mentioned something about this a couple of weeks ago about Chinese migrants trying to come across the U.S. southern border. And they're not, you know, obviously not a Latinos. And everybody thinks that that's all we got coming across. You know, there's hundreds of Chinese migrants that are trying to come and make the dangerous trek up through the Darien Gap from Ecuador. 
A large majority of them are lower to middle class dissidents and poverty stricken refugees looking for a better life. Life is better in the U.S. for the most compared to China, so they figure it's worth it with no regrets. Given the animosity that U.S. has with the PRC right now, in being, being granted an asylum won't be much more than a paper push for a lot of them. So the reporter in this story interviews several of them and details what it's like for them to try and get from Ecuador to up to the southern U.S. border. My next one goes overseas to the other side of the world. This comes from Ethiopia. And this is more of a humanitarian article than immigration. Ethiopia's Tigray crisis, deaths from starvation after aid halted, official. This was published like a few, few days ago, but this came out of BBC.com. It's a sad story about the humanitarian crisis that's been going on over in Ethiopia for years now. The bigger picture is this is just a precursor of what's going to come in a whole, whole lot more places beyond Ethiopia. And it's a sad article in itself, but I, I, I brought this into your attention because this is what's going to be coming for a lot of other countries. And I've been telling you guys this, all of the countries in the world that are in that tropic zone between the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn around the equator are going to become like Ethiopia before too much longer. So this one here is another environmental kind of uh, injustice article. Haiti, 97% of households in some areas suffering from severe hunger. Of 2,664 households interviewed in Croix du Bouquet and Delmas, 2,596 were usually getting one meal a day, survey found. And this came out of The Guardian by Luke Taylor. Over in the Americas, the same thing is going on in this lawless is you know is going on in this lawless island with no government to speak of the criminal gangs have taken over and thousands of people are now starving like ethiopia haiti is deemed too dangerous to provide normal world food program humanitarian food distribution there's been talk of nations providing military intervention but the criminal leaders are holding the people hostage telling the world that he will kill them all if he sends any troops over there so the people starve while what food available goes to the strongest gangs so here's the big thing. I, you know, Haiti's been in the news a little bit here and there, but anybody who's been paying any attention knows that the gangs have taken over. The government basically is almost non-existent, and they have no facilities to take care of these people. So now the people are starving, much like Ethiopia. So what's going to happen next? Are we going to just gonna let them starve, or are we going to do something to, you know, do something about these gangs and get some food in there? Remains to be seen. I know Canada was trying to do something, and they got shut down. Singapore employers using police to threaten domestic workers report says more than 80% of police reports made by bosses against their maids do not lead to charges, rights group says. And this came out of Al Jazeera by Tao Ming. Another world story of abuse of a foreign domestic staff, this time from Singapore. So my question is, why do these rich men around the world like slavery so much? Is it a power trip for them? For the maids, most of them from the Philippines, it could become a life or death situation. Yet these governments let them continue to abuse these poor folks who are just trying to make a decent living. So, you know, Filipino, the Filipino economy is not all that great. So for years, these people have been farming themselves out to the Middle East, Singapore, Southeast Asia, all these rich people that can afford maids. But yet these rich people are abusing these people really bad. 
and the Philippine government is trying to stand up to them, but still it's going on. And you know this story from Singapore. So it's not just in the Middle East, it's everywhere. So as everybody knows, the island of Maui had oil fires and it wiped out a whole town and a bunch of hurt, you know, damaged a bunch of stuff around the place. So I got this story. Maui wildfires exposed rift over island's tourism. Quote, we're more vulnerable than anyone admits, unquote, from the Guardian.com U.S. News by Manyi Singh. So Maui became so dependent on tourism that they're in a quandary over to where to go in the recovery process. The people living there depend on, depend on the income from tourism to survive because there's no industry or agriculture to sustain them. Colonial agriculture is a large part of what caused the dry condition to begin with. With developers breathing down their necks to build tourist venues on the ashes, the local government is trying to weigh options for the future and environmental sustainability so that another fire like this one doesn't happen again. These folks living there are between a rock and a hard place between the incomes and the residents and the environment. Which way they're going to go? Sometimes money talks louder, louder than the environment. We'll have to see how that all works out. Here's another one here, environmental article. Activist students go to summer camp to learn how to help institute a Green New Deal on their campuses. A new campaign from the youth-led Sunrise Movement, Sunrise Movement calls for pathways to green jobs, lower mission school buildings, interdisciplinary school curriculum by Carolyn Preston. This came out of the HetchingerReport.org. A good story about promoting today's youth to go out to their schools and push a green agenda to help the climate. More and more young people are wanting to get involved as they have figured out that the adults in the room aren't going to do much about but wring their hands and cry, woe is me. They actually want to do something, and this groom is facilitating that. School predicts, bru scientists predicts brutal population correction. We may be in for a rude awakening. And this came out of the futurism.com by Victor Tangerman. A scientist from the University of British Columbia is predicting that the human population will likely peak out just north of 10 billion, but there will be a population correction before the end of this century. What this means is that planet Earth will likely find a way to shed a large portion of life on its surface to bring things back into an uneasy balance. He predicts that once this correction is made, the population will get reduced down to about 100 million after it's all over with. He states that due to humanity's constant strife with one another, it's unlikely that the species will advance much beyond its current technological advances. As we know from experience, any technological advances will favor the wealthiest humans. So guess what portion of the social strata the 100 million survivors are going to come from? Washington is forcing a losing strategy upon Ukraine. And I rarely take, you know, give you guys anything about the war in Ukraine. But this one here... I felt was a little bit important. This is by Jonathan Sweet and Mark Toth in TheHill.com. So in its opinion piece, in, uh, you know, my whole take on this is once again, American imperialism rears its ugly head overseas. Everyone is afraid of the Russian bear. So the U.S., the largest contributor, is holding back on what Ukraine needs to make Russia back off and go home. The old Cold War, old Cold War fears are still riding high in politics around the world. Everyone is afraid that Russia will start throwing nukes at everybody, so they're tiptoeing around helping Ukraine fight the Russians off. As a soldier, I totally agree with the writers here. 
destroy the Russian supply lines just across the border, and the threat will largely disappear. Basic war strategy. But yet, NATO and the Americans especially are holding back on that. They don't want to fire anything into the Russian into Russian territory and, you know, force Putin to start throwing nukes around. Here's another one. It's kind of from the other side of the world, but it's kind of like the same thing. World has more to fear from an aggressive U.S. than peaceful China. With all the toxic politics in Washington and its obsession with global dominance, isn't the United States the biggest threat to global peace and stability? This came out of the South China Morning Post, and it's a common opinion by uh, Regina Yip. Now, she is a Hong Kong legislator, politician, and she wrote this an opinion piece. So take this with a grain of salt. So it's an opinion piece from an obvious PRC government lackey, but she does have a point. The U.S. has interfered with so many other countries' sovereign affairs since Teddy Roosevelt that we have now disrupted politics around the world to its detriment. Also, the U.S. could become the world's largest superpower, something they figured out they could do after World War II with their industrial might. That has largely backfired in the Middle East and South America. That doesn't seem to stop them with all the alliance and deal-making going on around the Pacific Ocean nations right now. For the U.S., the new big bad wolf is China after Russia largely collapsed in the 1990s. Of course, Putin is trying to make a weak comeback, but China has been pretty aggressive in the last couple of decades, flexing their industrial economic weight around the world, much like the Americans. Now, the U.S. can't have that, can they? Appearances must be kept up, after all, despite all of the internal turmoil going on within its borders. So that's the big question of the day. And this is coming from across the world, and it's not just China, in this, in the, you know, as far as where this piece came from. A lot of Europeans are asking the same thing. Are the Americans being a little bit too imperialistic and interfering in places they shouldn't be? A lot of people are asking that question. So I got this one from Tom Hartman here a few days ago. Did Barbie speed up the collapse of Trump's macho-based hate movement? Whether it's Barbie or the Trump prosecutions that have brought what feels like the AC change in American zeitgeist, or the combination of both of them around the same time, I'll take it. So this came out of the HartmanReport.com. So to start us some good news from the United States, it's about time. It's a good read, and he points out other movies in the past 100 years that have made significant cultural changes in American society going back to the early 20th century. Not all were good, but the changes in society were very noticeable. Hopefully the United States is tar- starting to turn a corner for the better. And what he's talking about a little bit is how this new movie, Barbie, going around the world now, is making a societal change in American attitudes about certain things. And the politics are starting to reflect that a little bit. Be interesting to see how far that goes. So this one, I've got a couple of education articles here from the United States. Knowledge is power. New app helps U.S. teens read books banned in school. Digital Public Library fights back against right-wing censorship with resource that works through geo-targeting. Again, another one from the Guardian.com U.S. News. So as we all know, the United States has been book banning like crazy in their red states, and it's getting worse. But now we've got a workaround here, it looks like. More and more, American libraries and other institutions are stepping up the fight against book banning in the U.S. 
by offering access to banned books online by various means. This way that the kids this way the kids can read the books in privacy, hopefully, without someone going to jail. Will these red states find a way to outlaw this as well somehow? Well, that's the big question. And I'm gonna be kinda of watching this to find out. I'm sure somebody will be writing about this if if they decide to do that. And then the next one, homeschool. For many homeschoolers, parents are no longer doing the teaching. And this came out of the WashingtonPost.com by Laura Meckler. So it's a story that speaks to what the pandemic shutdowns did to public schools in the U.S. More and more states are allowing school vouchers and other taxpayer-funded alternative education methods instead of the traditional brick-and-mortar school systems. The reporter gives us an idea of how homeschooling has turned into a lucrative business model paid for in part by state education funding and tuition. People are setting up small classrooms in their home for, for the neighborhood children. Homeschooling is morphing into organized daycare study groups for all age students. The issue is that people getting paid to run these homeschools are not educators. There are no state regulations yet on safety, quality of education provided, or little else. Eventually, some child will get hurt, or parents may realize that their children are illiterate and force a change. But for now... Daycare home classrooms are becoming all the rage for parents who want their kids to have a specific type of education or just advanced daycare. And yeah, I'm sure that eventually there's going to be some accidents in some of these homes or they're going to find out that these homeschoolers have no, you know, well, they already know these people are not licensed teachers, no accreditations, no nothing. They're just setting up shop and going to work and getting paid for it. Uh, this article talks about this corporation that's uh, funneling money to these people. Yeah, it, you know, eventually it's going to come to a crash. But for now, you know, whatever works. So my next one goes overseas again. And this one is about refugees again. Um, this one comes from Saudi Arabia. Saudi LGBTQ refugees live in fear of being kidnapped. An article on Saudi Arabia's repressive attitudes was spiked over fears of backlash. Index has chosen to publish it by John Lubbock, Daisy Steinhardt, and Max Colbert. And this came out of indexoncensorship.org. So I found this obscure article from the Middle East. It is, you know, it's been censored, which is, you know, the it was originally censored uh, by a major news media, but I found a link to it here. And I'm, you know, I'm bringing you the link here so you can read the whole article for yourself. So it's got side notes from the publication. So, you know, bear with it. But the article talks about how the repressive Saudi government is regarding, you know, it's how it's regarding their LGBTQ transgender people from Saudi. Going as far as threatening families, coercing them to return home with lies and subterfuge, then putting them in jail locking up dissidents in jail for decades for criticizing the royal family or the government. All the while, governments like the U.S. are going over there to make nice with them to keep the oil flowing. There's something inherently wrong with the world when the richest countries are forced to turn a blind eye to human rights abuses over money. In this case, oil money. And this next one I got from Saudi Arabia. Hundreds of migrants killed by Saudi border guards report from the BBC.com by Paul Adams. If anyone has any doubts about how brutal the Saudi regime is, read this article. 
The U.S. cruelty on, the, on our southern border is nothing compared to the hundreds of illegal Ethiopian and Somali migrants being shot and blown up with, with grenades by Saudi border guards. This report details survivor stories of hundreds dead in the southern border with Yemen. Will the Saudis ever be held accountable for all the dead? Not likely, because everyone needs their oil. So there's an update to this article. There is an actual investigation starting up with this, maybe because this article got published. I read something in today's news that they are, the, the Saudis and the Ethiopians, the governments, are starting to investigate what's going on here. So the question is, what's this investigation going to come up? Um, are they going to embarrass the Saudis or is it just going to get put away and forgotten about? Uh, I'll be kind of watching that one too, as well. And this one comes back to the United States. Republican states lawsuit against Biden immigration policy set to be heard starting this week. The president has overreached his authority, the states say, by allowing 360,000 Cubans, Venezuelans, Haitians and Nicaraguans in America to take pressure off the Mexican border. And this came out of NewYorkSign.com by Mary Julia Cott. This trial is more about the white Republican legislators in these GOP-controlled southern border states losing their power to a bunch of Latinos someday than controlling the amount of Latino migrants seeking asylum at the border. The horrors of losing their power to them terrifies them so much they're willing to make fools of themselves to get, to get their way. So a lot of it has to do with these border states like Texas, Arizona, California to a degree, but mostly Arizona and Texas leading the way, plus other red states that are north of them guys, doing everything they can to lock up the border as tight as they possibly can. They basically want to shut down nobody coming across the border. Absolutely zero tolerance for any live bodies coming across the border, period. And, you know, there's a big argument going on with the with uh, the buoys and all that in Texas, um, and that's part of what's part of this court battle right now. So it's going to be a big thing here over the next few weeks. So now I've got a feel-good article for you coming from Vietnam. Vietnam War. The pastor who survived 17 years in Forgotten Jungle Army uh, from the BBC.com World News by George Wright. So this is a story for any Vietnam veterans who might remember the mountain yards from the war. A feel-good story about a Christian pastor who not only survived the jungles of both Vietnam and Cambodia, but made it to North Carolina and set up a church. So it's a hero's tale with a happy ending. So I'm not going to give away too much about this. You should read this article, uh, especially anybody who served in Vietnam. Read this and be proud of yourselves. Be proud of this gentleman who's now down in North Carolina um, running his church. So I'm going to go more. I'm going to you know, go to the other side of the, of the scale here. Um, back, you know, again, the United States. U.S. businessman is a wannabe warlord of secretive far-right men's network out of the Guardian.com World News by Jason Wilson. It's an oddball story from the U.S. detailing how a businessman sold his very profitable manufacturing company to run a very right-wing network with eyes on taking over the country in small sections with himself as a self-styled warlord. His words, not mine. This is just another example of the craziness taking over the U.S. after Trump's presidency. And I, it's only because I, I, I brought this to you only because it is crazy. Um, this, this guy what actually said in public on, 
on news on a news interview that he wants to be a self-style warlord. So this is the next article I have is a bit international to a degree, only as it concerns Mexico. So American corporation Kellogg is going to war over Mexico's nutrition label rules. A similar fight is coming to the U.S. And it's come out of statnews.com by Nicholas Florco. Another story of corporate greed, this time about controlling a sovereign nation's right to make laws for its people. Kellogg Corporation wants to sell more sugary cereal to everyone, and Mexico has made a law that says the corporation must put labels on their packaging stating how much sugar is in each box. Kellogg's is fighting this and trying to do end arounds and so forth. Why does an American corporation feel like they have to subvert someone else's laws just to sell more cereal? Pretty soon, the U.S. is going to force them to do something similar, and they want to fight that as well. Profits over public health is the rule of law anymore as far as corp the corporate world is concerned. And there's been multiple stories of corporations doing everything they can to circumvent laws uh, you know, for public health and various other things, all for profit. And it's not just cereal company, but oil companies and everything else. They don't care how they make their profits. They don't care how many people they kill, just as long as they're making money. So my last story goes back, is, is an international story. It's kind of about China, but it's actually not quite so much. Article is Hegonism Not in China's DNA, unquote. Z calls for BRICS expansion. Z says China seeks a more just and equitable international order and rejects block confrontation. This came out of Al Jazeera.com economy section. You know, I talked about BRICS nations before, and now it's becoming more and more clear that China is trying to outmaneuver the U.S. and the American dollar. President Xi has expressed his interest in replacing the dollar around the world with the yuan, and if he keeps going, he just might succeed within a few years. That will likely bankrupt the U.S., but then that's the point, isn't it? And that's all the stories I have for you here in this first half. So I'm going to go ahead and take my break. As I said, I didn't have a lot of stories for you because my second half is a doozy. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be bringing it to you here in a couple of minutes. So stay tuned. I've got something good for you. I want to take this time to bring attention to my website called On Crombiehaw at URL HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash 527.websitex5.me. I have the RSS feeder enabled so interested folks can get a notice whenever I post something new. Within the website, I have a blog page where I post copies of my online blog articles and stories and a copy of the weekly podcast. There is a home page where you can learn a little more about what Ankram Biha means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little more about me in general. I also have a page with links to this podcast, another with links to my Medium and Substack pages, an ad page for my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. If you like my articles and stories in Medium.com and Substack.com, I have an option at the end of the blog articles to sign up for a subscription. No obligation. I also post weekly newsletters in each of, as a follow-up to the podcast every week with links to all the news articles and stories that I brought up during the shows. I don't want anyone to feel obligated to financially support my work, which is why I bring you the podcast for free. Medium does ask you to subscribe to re read most of everything you see, though. 
you have the alternative to read the newsletters for free on Substack.com or on the blog on my website. Everything I write about will be available in a blog section of my website if you don't want to sign up for anything. You don't, just won't have access to any other great writers there, but at least I give you a choice. If you enjoy reading, there are, these are some great choices you'll find where you like to read what you like most and dive in as much as you want. If you like what you read, feel free to comment on my website anytime. Welcome back to the second half of the Village Oak Tree. This week I bring to your attention portions of a Friends of Shen Thien newsletter I received on August 18th regarding the current situation with the Northern Ireland government in Belfast, commonly called Stormont. I've been a long supporter of Irish unity and no friend of the British since listening to stories from my granddad as a kid. And if I had been living in Ireland back then, I probably would have been a member of Fianna Fáil. But there were too many factions all claiming legitimacy during the Troubles, and a lot of them caused more harm than good. This bickering goes back ages. Seems the Irish have always struggled to come together on politics. The most famous leader who was able to bring the warring factions together for a time was Yardreep Brian Boru when he managed to gather the clans together to defeat the Danes at the Battle of Clontarf. Even before the Easter Rising of 1916, they couldn't agree on things. And the IRA split it up into the anti-treaty with England faction, calling their political wing Fianna Fáil, when Sean Fein splintered. The pro-treaty IRA group, which included the famous Michael Collins, became hated by the Fianna Fáil and the militant IRA, and became known as Fine Gael. Personally, I have always favored kicking the British out, if it could be done with undue bloodshed, um, in economic hardships. No one wants to bring back another famine time or British soldiers running amok, killing people just because they're Irish. Being dependent on the British for anything never brings anything good for anyone but the British until you kick them out. The United States being the most famous example of kicking, kicking the Brits to the curb. I just, I also don't profess to know everything that went on over there during the bad times and even now. I'm too far away, but I do keep an eye on what news I can find and I've read a lot of the histories, both past and present. If anyone wants to correct my version of things here, you are most welcome to, as I would also like to know the truth of things. If I'm wrong about something, I'll certainly say so. For those who are unaware, the Democratic Unionist Party, or the DUP, threw a temper tantrum last year when Sinn Féin won the majority vote and became the dominant political party in Northern Ireland. A little history. The Irish have been trying to get rid of the British for several hundred years under many banners. Sinn Féin became a political party in 1905, a few years before the Easter Rising of 1916, but diminished to near obscurity after the Irish Civil War in 1922. They didn't become a real political force again until the 1990s when they helped negotiate the Good Friday Agreement. Since Sinn Féin won the majority vote in the last national election in Northern Ireland, they have been trying to ramp up support for Irish unity which the DUP is scared of because they think they will lose their British identity and protections by the British government. As I said before, that ship sailed under, you know, during Brexit. Dear old Boris threw them under the bus in his bid to make Britain great again, and you can see how all that worked out for them. Now the DUP is crying to the British government to come save them from the Irish Catholics because they're afraid of retribution, despite Michelle O'Neill's statements telling him otherwise. The Brits are telling them, now, sorry, you're not British enough for us. 
The British government is thumbing their no royal noses at the Good Friday Agreement, and everyone around the world knows it. So it's, as it says in the letters here to the British Prime Minister, if you don't honor the Good Friday Agreement, we may take you to court in the EU. It appears that London doesn't care about any of the courts other than their own anymore. They're telling the world to bugger off and leave them alone in their misery. Irish unity is rapidly becoming a hot topic in, in Ireland, in both the North and the South, with the DUP still refusing to, to meet to create an assembly for power sharing, as per the Good Friday Agreement. It's been several months of standoffs, with still no sign that the unionists want to make any move towards power sharing with the Sinn Féin. In local elections recently, more and more local offices went to Irish Unity supporters this year for first time ever. Now, I've been very vocal in the U.S. in showing my support for the Irish and kicking the British to the curb since the early 1980s. I just wish Dublin felt the same way, and there's also been a stumbling block for Sinn Féin. Leo Varadkar, the preem of the Republic of Ireland, has been less than helpful, almost as if himself and President Michael Higgins are afraid of number 10 Downing Street. May they're afraid of losing British money. Given England's economic situation right now, that largest may go away anyway. Other countries who are English colonies or member of the UK have been leaving and are strongly looking for an exit door out of the UK these days, Scotland being one of them. In Dublin, both the PM's party, the Fine Gael, and the Fianna Fail have been pretty unpopular of late for mishandling the Republic of Ireland's economy and governmental institutions like housing and health care. Maybe they're too busy fending off the Sinn Féin wolves who smell weakness in their prey. They have been accused of corruption and all sorts of related offenses by the Sinn Féin. Maybe a change of government is, is due in Dublin as well, but that's another story for another day. In the North, Stormont is still largely empty of any governing body because the DUP wants to continue their temper tantrum. They say it's about their fear of losing their so-called British identity, which they really don't have anymore since Brexit. But to keep hanging on to a hope that Britain will come to their rescue anyway. Like most groups of minorities who have been in charge of things, they don't want change and are fighting to keep things as they were. Sounds a bit like a bunch of Americans we know. The main issue is that Northern Ireland, re largely represented by Sinn Féin now, wants the British government to hold, uphold the Good Friday Agreement. Primarily, the clause is about trade, preventing a hard border with the Republic, and bringing the murders, murders to justice and reparations to the families of those murdered by the sectarian violence during the Troubles. Britain doesn't want to touch that can of worms and wants the legislation detailed in the letter here dead and gone. They know what bad secrets that will bring to light much like the American torture and illegal detainment of so-called terrorists. Secrets that they don't want the world to know about. Things like torture and killings of suspected IRA terrorists. Quite a few who were innocent, and a few who were just children in the wrong places. What they and the Union factions did to the Catholics and accused IRA members in Northern Ireland during those bad times in the name of bringing peace. There are a lot of families trying to hold British feet to the fire to bring murders to justice which includes some British soldiers and police officials. The Irish have long memories of the martyr hunger strikers of H-Block in Long Cash in 1980 and 81, and their murder kinsmen during the Troubles before the Good Friday Agreement. I'm not saying that certain Catholic factions weren't equally guilty of doing bad things to the Unions either. But the Good Friday Agreement, although not perfect, is a good start towards reconciliation for both groups. Northern Ireland deserves to have peace and relief from the economic hardships caused in large part by the British. 
something they're famous for all over the world. Vote the British out for good and make peace with the Republic of Ireland. Become one nation under one flag and be the better for it. If you're an American of Irish descent, think about showing your support for the Irish unity and a Good Friday Agreement. Contact your congressional leaders. Let them know you support pushing the British government to uphold the Good Friday Agreement. It's a good start towards unification after so many hundreds of years of British rule and humanitarian abuses. If they can unify under one government someday with equal representation in Dublin, better things can happen for all the people on the island, not just a select few. I hope to see this in my lifetime. Now I'll read this letter to you to give anyone listening a sense of what kind of discourse is going on between London, Belfast, and North American politicians right now. If you click the link to this newsletter, which I will provide for you in the Village Oak Tree newsletter, you can listen to a YouTube video of a podcast interview between Greg Olon and the Friends of Sinn Féin and Kieran Quinn, the Sinn Féin representative to the U.S., there is also another video about the intimidation attempts by some radical factions trying to stir up trouble in Northern Ireland of late. The shooting of a police officer a few months ago, and now the massive data theft of police officers leaked online within the last couple of weeks. So now here's this letter that I got. I got it as an email, but it's, it's a, it is a letter. The British government, beyond shame, a letter from Ireland. Achara, the British government appoints a Secretary of State to quote, govern, unquote, the north of Ireland. I say appoints as none of a mandate in the north. The incumbent, the incumbent is Chris Heaton-Harris, elected by the good people of Daventry. You'll have to Google it. Mr. Heaton-Harris is the latest of the long line of British secretaries of state. Most were forgettable and were meant to be slagged for answers to the any pub trivia questions. The post for many is the high point of a mediocre political career. One constant has been Jonathan, now Lord Kane. Lord Kane has worked as an advisor to the North to the British Conservative Party since 1988, including stints as a special advisor to the Secretary of State from 1991 to 1995, and again from 2010 to 2016. He had a brief period in 2008 as a director at Bell Pottinger Public Affairs. The firm closed following scandal and bankruptcy in 2018 and was described by the New York Times as always seemed defiantly beyond shame. On being appointed to the Lords, he himself, he described himself as an unashamed and unapologetic unionist. He is now the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Northern Ireland office. He oversees the shameful British government legislation that will end inquests, judicial investigations, on police ombudsman's ombudsman inquiries into killings during the conflict. The legislation has been opposed by all political parties, the Irish government, victims groups, and national and international human rights bodies. It contravenes the Good Friday Agreement, the Stormont House Agreement, and the European Charter of Human Rights. It undermines the process of reconciliation and acknowledgement, yet the British government plows on. Last week, a leading group of Congress members reiterated their call for the British government to abandon their unilateral legislation and return to their agreements. This week, the Irish-America Unity Conference made public their correspondence with Lord Kane. Lord Kane made clear that they will continue with the legislation that could be passed as early as the first week in September, claiming that it has been approved and is consistent with legal, legal obligations, a position that is rejected by victims' groups. 
Despite the pretense of engaging, the British government is not listening. Irish America and the Congress are not stupid. They know when they're being played and sold the line. The British government is beyond shame. They are not beyond political gravity in the reach of the courts. There must be a diplomatic cost for breaching legal, legal obligations and international agreements. The Irish government can and should bring the British government to the European courts when they enact this legislation. They will have broken the rights of citizens living in the North. We have much to do to ensure that Britain honors its agreements and the rights of the victims are upheld. This issue will not end with the passing of legislation. The truth will win out. His mice, Kieran. Kieran Quinn is the Sinn Féin representative to North America. So then this is a, this is a part of the letter here to the British government. British government to the IAUC. We will not continence joint authority. The president of the Irish American Unity Conference, Peter Kissel, wrote a letter to British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, MP, on June 29th, in which Mr. Kissel called on British government to abide by the democratic principles, unquote. The letter, which there's a link here, called on the British government to, quote, reestablish Northern Ireland executive by requiring Democratic Unionist Party to honor their democratic mandate or invoke the authority in the North-South government body to oversee the full function of government operations in Northern Ireland jointly with the Irish government and withdraw the proposed amnesty legislation to give victims and victims' families the justice they deserve and to which they are entitled under the Stormont House Agreement. Lord Kane, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Northern Ireland, wrote back to Mr. Kissel, quote, on behalf of the UK government, unquote. Mr. Kissel says that Lord Kane's reply, and this is just a partial of what it says here, quote, insults the United States government, including Congress, the Irish government, the Irish American lobby, and even the UK's own House of Lords, unquote. He continues, quote, the Irish American Unity Conference has received an appalling letter from the British government, which lays bare the UK's disdain for Irish America. Lord Kane, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Northern Ireland, writing, quote, on behalf of the UK government, unquote, basically tells the US and Ireland to stay out of Northern Ireland affairs. Kane's letter, dated July 24th, is in response to the IAUC's June 29th letter to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. In this letter, the IAUC asked the UK to withdraw the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill in toto and to require the Democratic Unionist Party to re-enter the Northern Ireland executive or alternatively to exercise joint authority with the Irish government. So that's the letter and what I got. And the rest of it is, you know, the videos and all that stuff that I talked to you about. So that's my big thing about Ireland. It's a big deal if you have any affinity whatsoever for, for the Irish, which I do, obviously. But that's, you know, that's the big thing. So take that home with you. Listen to this. Listen to it again. If you want to do something, the best way you can help is here in the United States. Get all of your local congressmen. and Let them know you're unhappy about this. So that's all I have for you this week. I hope I've enlightened you a little bit with my choice of, you know, articles and, and my op-ed here for the second half. So I'm going to close this out with my you know, question of the week. How many Irish Canadians and Irish Americans would show support for Irish unity in Ireland, given all the troubles here in North America? Is it even something you would think about if someone like me didn't bring it to your attention? 
And that's the question of the day. Somebody like me. I'm just a little guy. I put out a little podcast here. But I am bringing this to your attention. That we should pay attention to our kinsmen over there in Ireland. I don't care if you're Canadian. I don't care if you're American. We all have kinsmen over there. Most of us immigrated to North America from there sometime in our past. So we do have cousins over there somewhere. So think about helping your cousins do something. And that's, and that's it for my show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll talk to you again next week. I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll return again for another episode of the Village Oak Tree. Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Each podcast episode will be free can be found on many different platforms now, although some may have advertisements. Unfortunately, I have no control over that. Search for the Village Oak Tree or under my name, T-O-D-O-M-H-N-A-I-L-L in your favorite app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree during our time together. As a Shanghai, I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you something that might bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your troubles be less and your blessings be more and nothing but happiness come through your door. Shlongo Foyle which means goodbye for now in Irish.